You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, 1 Corinthians 8, get that out there on your lap. That is where we are this morning. And this text, 1 Corinthians 8, is like the rest of the New Testament. Uh, It was written a couple of thousand years ago. And one of the things that means is that it was written into a different culture. Uh, the, The first century culture is different than current 21st century American culture. These two things are different. And there are times when you're reading the Bible that you're going to find our culture aligns really closely with first century culture. And when that happens, you're reading the Bible and you're like, oh, that's so easy to understand. I totally get what he's talking about and what he's saying. It's amazing when that happens in the Bible. And there are other times though, when you're reading the Bible and you start to feel that distance between the Bible's culture and our 21st century culture, when it's just miles apart between these two. And when that happens, when you're reading the Bible, you're like, I know I just read that chapter. I have no idea what it means. I don't know what that guy's talking about. I don't know what is happening in that chapter. And today our text is like that. It is one of these texts where you're going to feel the, dis- uh, the, the distance between first century culture and our culture really, really quickly. So in a moment like that, that's an invitation from the Bible to uh, think it through. And that's what we're going to do together. We're going to think together about 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, this chapter starts with these six words. And again, this is going to help you feel the distance between you and it. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols... That's our topic today, concerning food offered to idols. So like he's done throughout the letter, Paul is answering questions that they're asking, that they've written to Paul, they're, they're talking to Paul, and, and they're bringing questions. And Paul, it's just almost like a Q&A moment, he is addressing the various things they are bringing to the table. And because no one in this room is asking the question, Paul, what about food offered to idols? then the Bible is inviting us to step into the Corinthian culture, culture of the day, so that we can understand what it is that Paul is saying and what is happening in this church. So let's think about Corinth for a moment. Corinth was a pagan city. And like most cities in the ancient world, they were worshiping many gods in many temples. That's just everyday life in the city of Corinth. And as part of their worship, they would sacrifice animals. So when they would sacrifice an animal, part of that animal would be burnt right there to the gods. So you had that happening with part of the animal. Part of the animal would be uh, served in the temple as food. So uh, you could almost think about uh, temples in the first century as one part religious and one part social. So if you're going to go out to eat in Corinth, you are likely going to a temple. If you're getting married in Corinth, you're going to a temple. And in that temple, you would be served food, right? Oh, very similar to a modern day restaurant. So part of that animal would be served in the temple as food. And then part of the sacrifice would go to the market where people could buy that meat that was sacrificed to a God. Uh, They could buy that meat, take it to their houses and then eat that meat. Now the, the raging debate in the church in Corinth was, can we eat that meat that is sacrificed to idols? Can we do it? How are we to approach this issue? Some in the church are like, you can Others in the church are, you can't do it. That was the raging debate. Now, for the sake of just creating some categories for us today, the people in the church in Corinth who thought you could eat meat sacrificed to idols, we're going to call them the knowers, right? They've got their theology right. They've, they've, they've kind of done all the parsing of the Greek to know, can we or can't we? 
right? Those are the knowers. And then the people who thought you can't eat the meat sacrificed to idols, we're going to call them the weak. That's how Paul refers to them in this text. They're the weak. They're the people with a conscience that just says, I don't think you can. I think that's across the line. I don't think we should do that. So you've got the knowers, you can't eat meat. Uh, the, the weak who think, nope, you can't meet this, or eat this meat sacrificed to idols. So now Paul is going to weigh in and he's going to help the church work through this issue. So then we get to verse one again. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And you see that little phrase, all of us possess knowledge is in quotations. That is likely Paul quoting what they are saying to him, that they are saying we, we all possess this knowledge. But Paul is looking back at them and, and he is letting them know that, hey, I, I actually have a problem with this knowledge that you have. I have a problem with your knowledge. He's looking at the knowers and he's saying, uh, uh, hey, you knowers, it's, it's not a knowledge that I like that you have. Uh, the, the knowing that the knowers have, it's, um, it's, a, it's a knowledge with attitude. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a knowledge that uh, in knowing it, they're looking at you and they're like, you've got to be a moron not to know it. What is wrong with you? It's that kind of knowing. It's, it's knowing with an attitude. Uh, you could maybe think of it as a prideful knowledge. Th that's what the knowers have, right? Th that's what's happening here. So Paul says this knowledge puffs up. That's what it's doing to you. It's, it's puffing you up. It's spiritual pride. It, you've got knowledge, but it's with an attitude. But love, he says, on the other hand, builds up. Here's what this learning is doing to you. It's, it's puffing you up. But, but love does something much different. Love builds up other people. That, that's what love does. Now, before we look at the negative of their knowledge, let me just say something positive about knowledge. Knowledge in the scriptures is necessary. Knowledge is necessary. I just want us to feel that. Knowledge, it, it is necessary. In the scriptures, knowledge, you knowing what the Bible says is true. Or we could think of it this way, you having good theology, that is necessary. The, the scriptures affirm it as necessary. I love what one commentator said. He said, Christianity is much more than getting doctrine right. That's true. It's much more than that. But it's not less. You having good theology, knowing what the Bible says is true and false, that is important. We need right knowledge. We need good theology. Paul, the same guy who said knowledge puffs up, wrote the book of Romans, right? I mean, that is 16 chapters of rich, robust theology. And after writing that, that first 11 chapters that just have all of the deep waters of theology in it, after writing that, he says this in Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. This is going to be your natural drift. You're going to just going to drift into conformity. You're going to look like the world and say, don't, don't do that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be transformed. I want you to look like Jesus. Well, well, how do we do that, Paul? Well, here's what Paul says. We renew our minds. Renew our minds with what, Paul? The truth. Like all the stuff I just said, the, the rich, robust theology of Romans 1 through 11, that's how you do it. By testing and discerning everything according to the truth. That's how you do it, by, by renewing your mind as you study the scriptures. Think about the scriptures. Apply your mind to the scriptures so that you can see and know what is good and acceptable and perfect. Knowledge is necessary. We can't do Romans 12 too without knowledge. 
right, without seeing what the Bible says and, and calling some things true and some things false without good theology. Theology matters. Every follower of Jesus should make one of your ambitions, our ambitions, to study the scriptures, to develop into a good theologian, right? And just think about the alternative. What if we don't do that? I mean, the alternative is, if we don't develop good biblical theology, is we keep unbiblical bad theology, right? It's like, those are the options. You either develop and you become a good theologian, right? Knowing what the Bible says about various things, or you stay in this place of being a bad one, not knowing what the Bible says about various things in our life. Theology matters. It matters because it shapes the way we think and the way we live. Questions like, who is God? What does God do? What kind of life is pleasing to God? Those are all theological questions, and they shape everything about our life. Theology matters. So let me just stop here and apply this to the room. I want to just be a voice of encouragement to you to learn, to develop your theology, to know what the Bible says. Uh, Give your thinking to that and your mind to that and your heart to that. That is a good thing that every follower of Jesus should grow in. I want to become a better theologian. Uh, One just practical way to help you in that is in the resource area, uh, we have a concise systematic theology book uh, called Bible Doctrine. And I would just encourage you to grab that, uh, that systematic theology book. It's a concise version of it, but I think every household ought to, ought to have uh, one good systematic theology book in it so you can grow in learning how does the Bible address this issue and that issue and what does the Bible have to say about this and that. That theology book like that helps you discern and see those types of things. So I would totally encourage you to grab that. Moms and dads, what if you just gave the next year of your life to growing in your learning, to develop as a better theologian? You are not just a mom or dad. You are also a theologian who is a mom or dad. And your theology is not just shaping your life, it's shaping the life of your kids. And we want to shape our kids in the right ways, right? We all want to do that. So let's grow in our knowledge. Let's grow in our right theology, right knowledge, good theology. Knowledge, according to the scriptures, is necessary. But knowledge alone is insufficient. Knowledge alone is insufficient. So Paul warns them, hey, this knowledge puffs up. This is what your learning is doing. It's puffing you up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows, so there is an imaginary way of knowing something. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul is looking at this church and he is communicating to them. Um, Church, learning and love ought to be like a husband and wife. That's your picture of learning and love. These two things. Great theology and great love, they should be married and they they should be committed to one another until death do them part, right? He's saying that these two things should go together, but he's looking at this church and saying, here's the problem, church. Your learning has not led you to love, it has led you to pride. Spiritual arrogance, that's what it's led you to. Pride, not love. He's looking at the church and saying, your problem is that learning and love have gotten a divorce. That's the issue. In the midst of all of your learning, you have lost your love, church. You've lost it. 
You don't love people in the way that you need to. You have walked away from love. You know the right things, but you have lost the right heart. You have lost your love. And Paul is looking at them and saying, right learning without love is still wrong before God. Just hear that again. Right learning, great theology. I mean, you've got it all parsed out. You, you know the right answers. Right learning without love is wrong before God. Now, I think this is a word that every church who cares about theology in church, we care about theology because theology matters, right? I think this is a word that every church that cares about theology needs to consider, right? You, you can have right theology, but right theology without wet eyes is not pleasing to Jesus, Right theology void of love is not pleasing to Jesus. Right theology without a compassionate heart is not pleasing to Jesus. Jesus wants a church with both learning, good theology, and love. He wants both of those things together in a church. Now, again, let me me just stop here and apply this again to us. Some of us in the room are what we might call truth people. You know what I'm saying? It's like the truth is like important. We got to know the truth. We got to We've got to figure the thing out. We've got to get our theology straight. We've got to tell those people what, what is right. I mean, we've we got to get this thing right, right? There, there's those of us in the room who, who are truth people. Uh, there's others in the room who are what we might call love people, uh, grace people. There's those people in the room. And those people are like, yeah, I mean, we, we, we read the Bible sometimes, but we're just like, here's a person in front of us, and let's just love this person. Right? There's both of those two in the room. Now, I want to just give you a moment to discern which way do you tend toward? Do you tend toward being a love person? Let's just focus on the person. The truth can kind of come when it it comes when it comes. Or are you a truth person? No, we're going to get to the truth and like we might or might not get to love. Like where do you tend to drift? What is your tendency in conversations and interactions with people? And if you are a love person, I, I want to, again, be a voice that's looking at you and saying, you need to learn. You need to develop good theology because you really cannot love people in the way that is going to be pleasing and good for them, pleasing to Jesus and good for them, apart from you knowing what the Bible says, apart from you having good theology. So if you're a lover, make sure you're a learner. Now, on the other hand, if you're in the learning category, you're, you're a learner, You've got the theology tied down. You've got it zipped up. You've got it ready to go. If you're that person, make sure you are loving people, that your heart is tender, that your theology is bringing about wet eyes before the Lord, leading you just to awe of him, leading you to people in a way where you are compassionate and loving toward them. Right? Make sure you're that. Paul's saying here, learning without love. You got your theology zipped up. It's ready to go, but it's without love. It's really imaginary learning. You, you haven't really learned in a way that Jesus considers learning. Uh, until you have been led to love in your learning, you really haven't learned the thing. That, that's what Paul is saying here. So let's make sure we get love partnered up with learning. Then you get to verse four. Therefore, in light of what Paul has said, th- therefore, Now he gets into it. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many little g gods and many little l lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom 
are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul now is taking beautiful, rich, robust theology, and he is bringing it to bear on this issue in the Corinthian church. And here's essentially the two truths that he's bringing out to the Corinthian church. Truth number one, there's only one God, only one. Paul's acknowledging that many people have worshiped many gods throughout human history, but those gods have no real existence. They're, they're really make-believe, that they don't exist, that they, they aren't real. Every idol, every god worshiped in every temple in Corinth, Paul is saying it's really an imaginary god. He's like, I, I know that like Zeus is like a thing that people worship, but Zeus is not real. I know that Apollo is like a thing people worship, but there is no such thing as Apollo. He doesn't actually exist. These are imaginary gods. There's only one God in the universe. There's not a few hundred gods. There's not a few dozen gods. There's one God in the universe. He's looking back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, that there is just one God. And it's in this one triune God of the Bible that everything exists. It's for this one God of the Bible that everything exists. Paul's saying there's one God. Now here's truth number two. In light of there just being one God, uh, he, truth number two. He says, therefore, Corinthian church, you are free to eat sacrificed ribeyes. And the church said, praise Yahweh, right? You are free to eat the meat. So the knowers, now hear me, follow the logic here. The knowers, according to Paul here, have the right answer. So Paul says in verse eight, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. So if you eat or don't, it's really not a big deal because there's only one God. All of these gods, are, they're just imaginary gods. So it's okay. You can eat the meat or you can't. Either way is fine. This is a matter of Christian freedom. It, it, you can eat the meat and not be sinning in eating the meat, okay? So technically, the knowers have the right answer. But hear me, church. Jesus wants more than right answers. Jesus wants loving hearts. Can I say that one more time? Jesus cares more about you having right answers. He wants loving hearts. Verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, we're introduced to the weak here in verse 7. And that's not a derogatory term. That's just Paul's term to talk about a person whose conscience is saying, I can't do it. That although, that, you know, it, it would be okay, Paul's saying, this person is like, it's, it's not okay. It's not okay for me. I, I can't. I can't do this. That's the week. Now imagine this scenario. You're in the Corinthian church. You just, we go back a couple of centuries and you're, you're in the Christian church, right? And you're in the Corinthian church and pagan people are meeting Jesus. I mean, we're talking stories of radical rescue. I mean, people who, I mean, they, they were in the, the temple doing the thing and Jesus is rescuing them out of the temple. And now they are a part of the church that you're in, the Corinthian church. But unlike you, when they eat that meat, they cannot separate that ribeye from their old worship of Zeus. They can't do it. 
when they eat the, the, the meat, they're taken back into the temple. They, they feel and see themselves right there as if they are re-sacrificing this stuff to Zeus. They are there in the temple again. They are pledging their life and loyalty to, do, uh, to Zeus. I mean, they're just in the middle of this idolatrous worship. That when they eat the ribeye, that's what's happening to them. And Paul is like, their conscience, that inner sense of right and wrong in them is violated. It, it's across the line for them as they enter back into that, that old temple worship that they used to do. So Paul addresses the knowers. And this is what he says to the knowers in verse nine. But take care that this right of yours, like, are you free to eat me? Yeah, you are. You, this is a matter of Christian freedom. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, by, by you knowing the truth, you, this is an area of Christian freedom, and by you expressing that, that freedom, by you enjoying that freedom. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed and look at how Paul describes it. This brother for whom Christ died. Paul is saying, Christian, beware. Your freedom can kill your friends. He's saying, Christian, be careful not to prioritize your freedom over the well-being of your friends. He's looking at the knowers in this passage and he's saying, listen, knowers, you theology people. Right? We love our theology people, but you, but you knowers, you, you've got all the stuff right. Technically, your learning is right. You are free to eat meat, but what is technically right can be totally wrong if it's missing love. Th that's what Paul is saying to them. If you're exercising your freedom, enjoying your freedom at the expense of your friends, your brothers and sisters, if it's without love, then, then it's not good. It can hurt. It can destroy them. Look at those words in verse 11. And so by your knowledge, so you know what's right, then you're using your freedom. You're expressing, you're enjoying your freedom. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is angry at you. Nope, that's not what it says, is it? Their uh, feathers are ruffled a bit. That's not what it says. It says this weak person is what? Destroyed. Could there be more severe language? He says, your exercise of freedom is literally killing, ruining, destroying your friend. And look at how he describes that friend. The brother, the sister for whom Christ died. He gave his life for that brother, that sister. He suffered for that brother, that sister. He died for that brother, that sister. And Paul's looking at the church and saying, if, if Jesus gave his life for him, do you think you might could, out of love, give up some of your freedoms for them? Can you love people like that? If you want a, just a condensed summary of the teaching of Romans 8, or uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 8, here it is. It's love is greater than freedom. Humble, sacrificial love is greater in the Bible than your enjoyment of your freedoms. That, that's, that's the point of the chapter. Love is greater than freedom. 
So he goes on in verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. He's saying when you enjoy your freedom at the expense of your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't just sin against your brother and sister. You are sinning against Jesus when you do that. When you're living without love in these ways. He goes on in verse 13. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's saying, if a ribeye causes my friend to fall, I'll sacrifice my freedom for my friend. Why? Because love is greater than freedom. Paul is saying, I will go vegan. Now listen, man, if if you came to me and said, I need a kidney, I'd be like, yes, let's do it. But if you said, give up the ribeye, I'm like, we've got to talk about that. Paul is saying, I will go vegan for the sake of my friends. That that is where love is taking him. So that really poses the question for us this morning. Here's the question this is presenting to us. Do we love people like that? Would you just ask yourself this question? Do you love people? Is that true of you? Do do you love people? Do, Do you love people more than your freedoms? more than the things you can do? Do you love people like that? Do you love people? Or have you lost your love of people? Does the love of people take you into places like this where you're like, you know what, I'll lay down this freedom because I love this friend. Is it taking you to places like that? And church, this is a question that we do need to keep before us. Years ago, Anne Rice made this observation in an interview. She said, Christians have lost credibility in America as a people who know how to love. I think she's right. I've seen enough Christians just reach for the juggler of another person. I've seen enough of that happen to know we should not dismiss that critique quickly. We should pause over that. We we should ask, God, do I know how to love? Do I love people? If the last three years, just rewind the clock three years ago, if the last three years have taught me anything, it is that the church needs to relearn how to love. Uh, Just take COVID. Over the last three years, we've had the, you hate me if you don't wear a mask. And we've had, you're an idiot if you do wear a mask, people. Uh, We have had the, you're an idiot if you don't get a vaccine. And you're an idiot if you do. And you're probably gonna have a third arm start growing. We've had those people, right? Uh, Think about politics. If you vote that way, you're a complete idiot. If you vote this way, you're really an idiot, right? Uh, Think race. If you see race this way and the solutions that way, you are a massive idiot. But if you see it this way and that way, I I can't even speak to you anymore. It's just been a massive lack of love. The the church of Jesus really does need to learn how to love again. So let's just pause and ask, do we know how to love? The church of Jesus can't love. We as a people can't love. We personally don't know how to do this. Do you love people? That's the question. Do do you love people? I, I was just praying over this last night, just asking the Lord, like, gosh, do I? And I, I, I don't think I love people right now as much as I did three years ago. And I want to, I I want the Lord to give me a heart that just loves people. Like Paul loves people, like Jesus loves people. You know, the scriptures show us that learning without love, really life without love is useless in God's economy. 
We're going to get to 1 Corinthians 13 soon, but listen to how Paul talks about it there. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, here's all I am, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Listen to what he goes on to say. This is an amazing text. He says, if I have all prophetic powers, I mean, you're, you're that person. If I understand all mysteries and knowledge, you're, you're that person. You've got all the learning in the world. You've got all the wisdom in the world. And if I have all faith, you're, you're that person. You're just full of faith. I mean, just whatever God wants to do, whenever I, we're just there and doing it. You have all faith. So as to, to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but if not love, I have gained nothing. I mean, that's an amazing text, isn't it? It is Jesus showing us that life without love, learning without love, generosity without love, knowledge without love, life without love is useless. Maybe think of it in a basketball analogy. Imagine you're on a basketball team and you have this lights out shoot. I mean, this guy does not miss. You just watch him shoot. It's, it's artistry. It's just amazing what this guy can do shooting a basketball. He just cannot, he's, he's knocking down every shot for him. It's just amazing what he's doing. The problem is it's all toward the wrong goal. It's for the wrong team. He's on your team, but he's shooting for the wrong team. He's shooting at the wrong goal. And, and you look at him and you're like, dude, what is wrong with you? You're killing us. You're killing our team. And he's like, what? killing our team? I'm making every shot. And you're like, for the wrong team, you're making every shot, right? That's what the knowers in Corinth were doing. That, that is what learning without love is doing. It is doing damage to team Jesus. You, you, you think you're making all the shots, but, but Jesus is like, but you're actually doing damage to my team. Friends, you can be technically right. You can be right about COVID. You could be right about politics. You could be right about race. You could be right about the 13 other issues that we've all thought about over the last couple of years, right? You could be right about all of those things, but without love, you are still dead wrong and you're doing damage to team Jesus. Just, just hear that. Just allow the Lord to, to just set that in front of you. Even if you're right, and it's without love, it's still totally wrong. So let's ask ourselves again the question, do you have love for people? Do you love people? If I just gathered maybe five to 10 of your friends and I asked them the question, does, you just put in your name, do they love people? What, what do you think your friends would say about that? What do you think your spouse might say about that? Your kids might say about that. Do they love people? Is loving people something you used to do or something that you are doing? 1 Corinthians 8, in a lot of ways, is an exposition of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. What, what Paul takes 13 uh, verses to say in 1 Corinthians 8, he says in 2 verses in Philippians chapter 2. And here are the two verses that really 1 Corinthians 8 is showing us and, and teaching us. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's what Paul is getting at. That's where he wants to take us, that kind of love. So let me just give you a moment to evaluate yourself. I'm gonna read a quote 
from Alexander Strzok. And really, it's just a, a way for you to examine your own life and heart. He's answering this question. What happens when love grows sleepy in our life, grows cold in our life? What, what happens when we stop loving people? How, how do we know? And listen to what he says. When love goes to sleep, we grow cold and unfeeling toward people. Is that, is that you? When love goes to sleep, we love material possessions and personal comforts more than people. Like when is the last time you've sacrificed material things, money, possessions, things that you could in your freedom with Jesus enjoy, but, but you've said no to so that you can serve and love a brother or sister in Christ? We love our work more than people. When love goes to sleep, we become bitter toward people. Maybe that's yours. You're just embittered toward people because our feelings have been hurt. When love goes to sleep, we become weary and selfish serving. We become ungrateful people. Maybe that's it. You just can't find things to celebrate in your life anymore. We become people content to show love only to those who agree with us. So you agree with me about politics? Now we can talk about uh, loving you. You agree with me about these things? Now we can be friends. We become lazy and complacent about love. We neglect our duty to love the unlovely and the disagreeable. Like the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan, we become apathetic to the suffering of others. Can you find yourself in there? Is that you? Do you love people? That, that's our question. Do we love people? Would you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Lord to search your heart. Do you love people? Paula is just reminding us today that humble, sacrificial love is greater than your freedom. It's greater than right knowing and good theology. Humble, sacrificial love. And a lot of us need to relearn that. And here is where we learn and relearn what sacrificial love is. It is by looking at the blazing center of love, which is the cross of Christ. Can you just imagine in your mind's eye, Jesus there hanging up on a tree? Can you see him there? It's by fixing our eyes upon the dying love of Jesus that we are empowered in a life of love. It's how our hearts wake up to the beauty of love. Sacrificial love, humble love. And friends, this chapter today is inviting us into a life that reflects the humble, sacrificial love of that God-man hanging from that tree. Let me just give you this homework this week. Ask the Lord for one way to express love to someone within your church family, for, for these brothers and sisters for whom Christ has died. What's one way you can show your love to your church? 
One way you can show that you love that brother whom Christ died, that sister right there of whom Christ died. What's one way you can show that, express that this week? That this is an invitation to reflect the, that sacrificial, humble love of Jesus. And this chapter is an invitation to receive that gentle, beautiful, sacrificial love of Jesus. Friend, if you have not made that decisive step toward Jesus, if you have not surrendered your life to him, this is your chance to do that. It's an invitation for you to do that, to turn from all the sin in your life and to throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. To hold your life up to the Lord and say, God, I'm trusting you. Jesus, I am trusting you. Would you save me? And Jesus stands so ready to do that today. Just in the words that you know how, say that to the Lord. Say that to him now. So Father, would you come now and would you minister to us? Holy Spirit, would you press down the good news of Jesus into our heart? Would you... Would you set the sacrificial love of Jesus before our eyes and may you, Holy Spirit, wake our hearts up today. Wake our hearts up. Make us loving people. And it's in the great name of Jesus we ask it.